Yeah, that dog's going on keto right now. <laughs> Just get there. You're done, dog. What? Fluffy? You call that fluffy? Yeah, all right. My my aunt had a dog named Fluff. My uncle shaved him every year. Shaved him straight down every year. He hated the hair. He just shaved him bald. It was hilarious. He ran around and just bald. Poor dog. The dog won't want to come home with you guys. Oh no. It's going on a diet, man. Huge. I mean I it like waddles through the door and stuff. I'm like, what happened to you? You want to know what really happened? What? That dog spent its whole life running around with all of your kids. And then, and then it stopped. She goes, I don't have anything to do anymore. Yeah. Nothing to do. I think I'll just lay here and wait for Grandpa to feed me. Wait for Grandpa to drop a pork chop on the floor. I'm on it. Yeah. Eat his bowl of popcorn. <laughs> Grandpa's sleeping through the whole thing. Gotta sit on his lap. No wonder why that dog loves him. Makes, makes sense now. Oh, anyway. Well, we'll just keep keep taking care of her. But uh, anyway, she's happy. That's for sure. Joshua chapter 5 here. We are going to talk about Old Testament circumcision versus New Testament circumcision because the topic comes up and Wednesday night I taught on that on a little bit on Paul's dilemma, I called it, uh, whether he was to circumcise Timothy or not. And he did circumcise Timothy, but he did it for a reason. It had nothing to do with justification uh, or, or his salvation. It had more to do with evangelism and the fact that he was dealing with Jews. And Timothy was a Jew, and he wasn't going to get anywhere without that. So he circumcised him for that reason. And uh, it was a good reason because it opened up a lot of doors of evangelism that would have been closed. They would have cut Paul off. If you remember right, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem... He's seized in the temple when he's with James, and they seize him, and they take him, and they take him to Rome. And the reason they do that, by the way, follow this train of thought. He was in Jerusalem, and where did they take him? To Rome. To Rome. There you go. Okay? And what does the Bible say? We are in the time of the Gentiles. The Gentiles. So when, you, when, when people try to understand the mystery religions, and they try to understand that, just follow the train of thought. He's in Jerusalem. The Jews work with him, with them to send him to Rome because they have no king but Caesar. See, still they still have the same king, Caesar, the papal one. Same one. Yes, Pontifus Maximus, that's right. Same guy, same lineage, same throne. So anyway, if you follow that, then you'll understand the pecking order of, the, of, that, of the mystery religions and how it really operates. It's all the same spirit, though. In the end, it's all the same spirit. So, anyway, Joshua chapter 5, Old Testament circumcision, verse number 2 here. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land, which the Lord sware unto their fathers, that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. Father, Lord, help us as we look at Old Testament circumcision versus New Testament. Help our hearts to be circumcised today. Thank you so much for your work. There be one or two here that are not saved by the grace of God. May they fall on their knees in repentance and faith and believe the gospel and be supernaturally changed by the Spirit of Almighty God. By the blood of Jesus Christ, in your precious name we pray. Amen. So we come to this circumcision. Old Testament circumcision, which was part of the ceremonial law, was done away with the types and shadows of the Old Testament. 
So they were rites and they were ceremonies and they were, so to speak, ordinances for men as the leaders of their homes. And that's what they had. And as the boys that were growing up there, this type of Old Testament circumcision uh, was a picture, a shadow of what was to come. Because God, understand this, God always wanted man's heart. The reason he gave circumcision to Israel was he wanted their hearts. He always wanted the heart. The law was given that he would have their hearts. Jesus Christ came by, by, true, by grace and truth that God may, would have our hearts. That, that Jesus would sit on the throne of our hearts, that he would regenerate us and make us new creatures, that we would be pleasing to God through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. Amen. And that's the only way we can please God in that sense. So number one, first, why had the Israelites not circumcised them? You know, that's a good question. It's something that we should look at. Why, why did that happen? Well, the text really tells us why it happened. They, wh- why did they need to and why hadn't they? Circumcision was a sign of the covenant that had been before God, that had been made before God. It was a sign of his people in the Old Testament. You see, they needed that ordinance because God had commanded it to be done. I like the explanation that W. Pink gives. He says, it is clear that during their lengthy sojourn in Egypt, the children of Israel departed grievously from the revelation which God had made unto their fathers from the, and the statutes which he had given them. And judging from the case of Moses' own son, there is little doubt that the ordinance of circumcision had been generally, if not universally, neglected and omitted by them. So, Israel sojourning in Egypt, they did not circumcise. The Bible talked about them falling into apostasy. When they got out, when they were leaving Egypt, what did he do? He said, all the males need to be circumcised. And God stopped him along the way and was going to kill him, right? And he told him, he said, you circumcise And what did Moses' wife say? Thou art a bloody man to me. She had no understanding of why that was being done, why that covenant had to be done that way and why, why that sign of the covenant had to be done. So she was upset about that. The words that the Bible talks about, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob in Exodus chapter 2. What does that imply? That Israel forgot the covenant of the Lord. They fell into apostasy and they forgot the covenant of God. And they sat there as slaves in, in, in Egypt. Just like you and I, when we, before we were sa- saved, were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves and in bondage to the iron furnace of this world. We are subject to all of the things of this world when we were enslaved to this world as lost people. That same picture is there. God never forgot the covenant that he had made, though. The express prohibition that none should partake of the Passover save those who were circumcised was found in Exodus chapter 12. He told them, hey, if they haven't been circumcised, they can't receive the Passover. I mean, they can't. They're not, they haven't, they haven't, the sign of that covenant is not there. It's not upon them. And it implied also that Israel, they had forgotten what, they, what the Lord had commanded them. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. This denotes that circumcision had at last been administered, probably at the beginning of that thick darkness which was upon all of Egypt, those three days. That preceded the Passover night. So we see a pattern. Though Israel was sorely treated, they had fell into apostasy. They had not followed the commands of the Lord their God. They ignored the sign of his covenant. They did not follow his statutes. Verses 4 through 7 in Joshua chapter 5 tell us that, well, that it was required such a wholesale circumcising of the male Israelite adults as well as children on this occasion. Now, all the people that came out of Egypt were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, they did not. They fell into apostasy in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were rejected by God for 40 years. Albeit, God did not re- remove all of his grace from them, for he gave them Moses and he gave them the law. But as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, they did not keep the Passover and they were not circumcised. Why? Because their children would bear their whoredoms, is what God told them. They would be, they would be, they would not have the sign of his covenant. They would not have, they would not have the Passover. They would not have those things because of the apostasy, because they rejected the Lord, because they did not believe God by faith. 
when God told them to go into that promised land. And he said, your children will bear your whoredoms. You're going to die in the wilderness. Your carcasses are going to fall in the wilderness. And your children are going to bear their whoredoms. Bear your whoredoms. But now what happened? Now what happens, though, is they come to the brink of Jordan. And what does God do? He miraculously lets them walk across on dry ground. And by doing that, what did God do? He signified to them that the reproach was over. He rolled away the reproach of Egypt off of them. Right? That's a picture of salvation, right? It's a picture of salvation. They were saved. Remember, the Egyptians said, you're going to die in the wilderness, right? So they were tested for 40 years. That number 40 is the number for testing and trial, right? Boy, how accurate that is in my life. Um, But, but you know, they're... That number 40 was that, and and God said, I will roll away the reproach of Egypt off of you. And that's what he did. And that's why at the hill of the foreskins, that's why they are circumcised there. Many people uh, make excuses for Israel for why they did not follow the Lord's commands. But it all comes down to apostasy and complacency that set in. Those people stopped obeying the Lord and his commands. They were no longer sensitive to the things of God. Right? They were insensitive and they cared not for his statutes and would have none of his ways. You know what? If we're not careful, we can be the same way. Coldness and deadness can set in into your heart. As children of God, that can happen to you. Backsliding happens to children of God. They can be cold, they can be dead, and then God will send afflictions to warm it up a bit and to get you to pay attention that you need the Lord, that you need to follow God, and that you need to be serious about your walk with God. We see it in American churches today, don't we? If we're not careful, we can see it in our own hearts. The love of of many shall wax cold. Matthew Henry came very much near the true explanation, though he states it rather vaguely. He says, the real reason we submit was that what occurred at Kadesh Barnea. It was there the murmuring and unbelief of Israel reached its awful and fatal climax. When they hearkened to the evil report of the ten spies and refused to go forward in the land of Canaan. They said, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. And that angered the Lord. And when Joshua and Caleb expostulated with the expostulate, expostulated, excuse me, with them, all the congregation bade stone them with stones. They wanted to kill their deliverers. They wanted to kill them. They wanted their deliverers to be dead. And they wanted to go back into Egypt. They wanted to go back into apostasy. We've seen that before, haven't we? You've seen that with people. They decide it's not worth it. They don't want to live for the Lord. So what do they do? They make them captains and they go back to Egypt. They go back to the world. And they never came back. And some of them won't ever come back. Right? Choke the word. They're done. It was then that he declared, but as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall bear your whoredoms. But you remember that sermon I preached years ago? Your children shall bear your whoredoms. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to that one. All the number of the days in which you search the land, 40 days each day for a year. You shall bear your iniquities 40 years and you shall know my breach of promise. That's what God told them. That's why they didn't circumcise and have the Passover. God's like, no, you're going to wander around in 40 years. Right? When Israel, after repeated provocations, at length consummated their rebellion by despising the promised land and refused to advance beyond Kadesh Barnea, God swore that only two of that generation would enter in, the remainder being condemned to perish in the wilderness. They fell. For 38 years, Israel was in a state of apostasy. And during that time, their children bore the reproach of the same by being denied the token or the sign of the covenant. They were denied it. While the awful sentence of Numbers 14, 32, and 34 lasted, Israel was a rejected people, and therefore their children were not entitled to bear the mark of the covenant, their relationship to God. But for the sake of their children, he did not withdraw every token of mercy from that generation but he provided sustenance and guidance throughout their journeys. The daily supply of manna, the pillar of cloud and fire, the erection of the tabernacle, were so many 
intimations that God's favor would yet return unto Israel, though he had cast off their fathers. You know, God, even in his mercy and his judgment, he always has mercy. He always leaves that mercy there. Some signs and tokens of his mercy that he has not withdrawn it completely. You know, in different times of my Christian life, you know, I would say over the course of the last four or five years or four years, you know, there was a time that I went through what some, you know, depression and different things and anxieties and and probably I would say uh, desertion. I experienced that as well, uh, where where God pulls away his comfortable presence from you and and you cannot feel the presence of God. You cannot, you're the, 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 the joy that you once had or the strength and the power that you once had, it is not as evident. However, the one thing that God taught me through that is, though he took away some of those things, he also magnified other graces in my heart and he strengthened those graces. He left those token of his graces there to exercise those graces and to make them stronger. And in the end, what it did was it made me a stronger Christian. It made me a a better father, a better husband, a better pastor, a better friend to people because that's how it works. That's when God takes something away like that. He never takes it fully away. He never takes his presence fully away. He only removes that comfortable presence to try you to know what is in your heart. So you are challenged. So you are tried. And that's what the Israelites were for 40 years. They were tried in that way. But God was still with them. The miraculous passage of the Jordan gave clear proof that Israel was once more restored under the divine favor. That Jehovah had resumed his covenant relationship with them. That in emerging from the river of death, judgment was behind them. That this sentence upon their fathers had been completed. That miracle showed unmistakably that Jehovah now owned Israel as his people. And therefore were they fit subjects again to receive the sign of the covenant upon their bodies. Circumcision was the token of the Abrahamic covenant. We find in Genesis 17:11. That ordinance was the mark by which the natural seed of Abraham was distinguished from all other nations as a people in covenant with Jehovah and which bound them by a special obligation to obey him. It was a sign of the promissory part of the covenant which secured to Abraham's seed, the land of promise. Thus it was fitting that this second generation should now be circumcised. Moreover, the restoration of circumcision was to be accompanied by a revival of other institutions, which we'll talk about next week, the Passover. Upon Israel's entrance into Canaan, they came under a stricter discipline than they had. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll show you this here. God told them, future tense, he told them in in Deuteronomy 6, 1, he says this. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land, whether you go to possess it. So they didn't observe those right away. He said, when you get into that land, you're going to observe these covenants. Then we have Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse number 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. So he says, when you go to that land, when you're in that promised land, when you are, I are in that Christian life, that we're, we're conquering Canaan. Remember, that's what this series is about. Conquering Canaan. When we're in that land, when we're fighting in that land, when we're, when we're doing that, this is, these are the promises. These are the things that God has given us. And this is the way by which we war good warfare. This is the battle. This is the plan. Verse number 8 in Deuteronomy chapter 12 says, You shall not do after the things that we do here this day. Do you see the difference? You shall not, he said in the wilderness, you shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. That's what they did for 40 years. They just did what they wanted to do. They did that which was right in their own eyes. They followed along, they traveled along, and that's what they did. But then when God says, when you cross that Jordan... You know, that's our Christian life. When we cross that Jordan and we're saved by the grace of God, that picture of salvation entering into Canaan land, when we are saved, you don't get to live your life any old way you want to. You can't, you can't do that. You don't get to do that. You know, that's not your life any longer. Your life is different now. 
You don't, you don't just get to live that lifestyle that the world lives, right? You don't, you don't do that. Our lives are different. Our rules are different. Our destination is different. We don't have the same thing. You know, I remember when I was a lost man, and I had a little incident that came up yesterday, but I remember when I was a, when I was a lost man, I would have handled that a lot differently than I handled that yesterday. Well, I would have handled that a lot differently. It would have been on like Donkey Kong. If I, it just, I'm just telling you it would have been. I, I, that's how I would have handled it. Right? Some of you might think, well, you know, some of you there might think, well, that was, that was pretty firm. That was pretty strong. Yeah, that was pretty tame. That, yeah, that was pretty tame. Actually, to be honest with you, where I come from is really tame. Just was. Minnesota has this weird kind of passive-aggressive thing. I don't know what the deal is with it, but it's kind of, it's kind of weird. <laughs> like, I didn't grow up like that with that weird kind of passive-aggressive thing. It was just like... Two guys, they, they, a lot of those guys, I didn't do it, but a lot of those guys, the older kids than me, they would go, go down to the train bridge and fight. Yeah. I mean, they were, and that's not right, by the way. I'm just telling you, that's the way the world does things. But that's the way the, the world, if they see you be a man, they think you want to fight. No, I don't have any desire to fight. I, not at all. Just being a man and talking like a man. Because, I mean, the most immature thing I could ever do would be to get into a fist fight with somebody over something. That would be immature. I would be foolish. Why would I do that? But see, they, they don't, people, the world doesn't understand real manhood like that. Like, they don't understand confronting something, hitting it straight on, having the discussion about it, and then compartmentalizing it and being done. It's being like, well, it's just, that's the issue. It's nothing else. Just that. Right? The world doesn't understand that. But we don't operate like the world. So when someone wants to do this and do that, well, we don't do any of that. Eh, whatever. I don't, I don't need any of that. And that, that's the difference. Once you cross Jordan, that's the way it is. Our lives are different. We're held to a higher standard. We're accountable. We're, we're different. But we don't check our manhood either. We're still men. God expects us to be men. He expects us to conduct ourselves as men, biblical men. Amen? And that's important. Now, Christ being the most excellent of all, we're going to look at this a little bit, this thing of circumcision. Israel had that sign of the covenant, but it was a mere picture to them, for it was done away with. It was a mark in the flesh, so to speak. It was a sign for the land that God had promised them. But we see in Acts 15 and have learned that Gentile believers had nothing to do with circumcision. Old Testament circumcision has nothing to do with us in that sense. Some people might circumcise their they're boys for health reasons and different things like that. That's totally fine. That's a personal decision. Or they might not. But it has nothing to do with the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, let me tell you something. Circumcision that is done today is not the same as what Abraham did. It's way different. It isn't the same procedure. So when you use that blanket circumcision and you call it that, it's not the same what doctors do today. That's way different than what, what was done in the Bible. Way different. Not the same thing. So it's interesting. Uh, interesting. It doesn't really, I mean, either way, we're Gentiles. We have, no, we have no dog in the fight, so to speak, when it comes to that. It just doesn't have anything to do with us. But, but, but the point is, is that we are under New Testament circumcision. But let me tell you, number one, what it's not. New Testament circumcision is not baptism. I want to get that clear, very, very clear. New Testament circumcision is not water baptism. Nowhere are we instructed in the scriptures that New Testament baptism replaced Old Testament circumcision. There's not anywhere in the Bible that says that. Now, a lot of this, I'm going to speak very firmly about this because I'm very passionate about this. Because I understand two things. One, I understand that, that there are many false doctrines out there that confuse people and there will be people that will believe that their water baptism can save them they'll believe that their infant sprinkling can save them and they believe that that is a very dangerous belief i make no apology by lifting up my heel and sticking my head to it and crushing it i will not apologize for that i will not i will not save somebody's feelings concerning that because we are talking about eternal life 
We are talking about your soul. We are not talking about something minuscule. We're not talking about uh, the difference in, um, in, diff- in some, some obscure doctrine of things that, that isn't really a big deal or some difference in practice. This is not. This has something to do with your soul. It has to do with soteriology. It's very important to your, it's the soul of a man. It has to do with where you'll spend eternity. And that is something that we cannot play games with. Damnable yeah, that's right. It is a damnable heresy. Uh, infant baptism or baptismal regeneration, whichever flavor it comes in, it is damnable heresy. New Testament circumcision is not baptism. That was made up by some infant baptizer. Probably Augustine which we'll get to in Baptist history. Hang on. Infant baptism cannot be found in the scriptures. Search and show me one direct account of a baby being baptized. That is the rule of our faith and practice. If it's not in here, then I throw it away. I don't care if my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother did it. I don't care if your mom did it. It doesn't matter to me. Okay? This is what I stake my never-dying soul Amen. on. I'm sure not going to stake it on something that I can't find in this book. Amen. And you won't find it. And the Bible says that you and I are to hate every false way. We're to hate it. We're to despise it. We're to think very little of it. And we're to put it down and cast it down. We have to. Because we'll confuse people if we don't. Would you want your children to be confused and go to hell because they were confused about baptism? Because they thought water baptism would save them. Because they thought an infant sprinkling or a ceremony like that would save them. Or a confirmation or whatever the case may be. No. See, show me Jesus baptizing babies or John or Paul or Peter or any of the apostles. We can't. You can't. So then if you practice it, you practice something foreign and made up, and shame on you and I if we practice something for presuming a fake ordinance on God and feigning it as worship. Strange fire. Right. Spurgeon rightly called it the badge of Antichrist. He said it's apostate. And like Paul said, I would they were cut off that trouble you. He said that of the Judaizers that troubled the saints. Some theologian dreamed up infant baptism in his deluded mind, and many have followed it. But let me ask you a question. Do you follow God or do you follow man? Do you follow the traditions of man or do you follow the Word of God? You and I must stake our, our never-dying souls, and we must stake everything that, 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 we, that eternity holds for us upon that book. And if it, cannot, if it is not staked upon that book, then it is on faulty ground, for Christ is the only true foundation of all faith. If faith is not based on faith, in, faith is in a person. It is not in an ordinance. It is not in means. It is not in anything else. Faith is in a person, and that person is Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the person that we, that we put our faith into. How can you carry the badge of the whore? It's a good question. How can you love vanity? How can you be antichrist and deny the scriptures? One is right. One is wrong. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If the Lord be God, then follow him. If Baal or the Pope be God, then follow him. Because that's where it comes from. Luther got it from the Pope. He got it from Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism, from a chain of events that took place from the time of Augustine and, and infant baptism, that's where he got That's where they got it. They got it as a compromise for Africa to compromise it and to, and to make up a compromise with the heathen rites that were going on in Africa. That's where it came from. But not from the scriptures. And all those children of the whore shall die in the fiery bed with the whore Rome's scarlet harlot. The Bible says, come out from among her that you be not partaker of her evil deeds. We are not Protestants for that very reason, but are Baptists because we know that circumcision was not replaced by water baptism or infant baptism or any other baptism. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. So that's the next point. Number two, New Testament circumcision is a matter of the heart. 
Romans chapter 2, verse number 28. For he is not a Jew. We'll be there for a while, so you can look at a few of these verses. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Paul was very clear in the book of Romans. His doctrine was very clear. He didn't want to confuse anybody. Philippians 3, 3, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. If anything, you understand some of you that have been sick and went through anything in your body falling apart or a part of your body falling apart, right? Or getting injured or anything else that we've all been through. The one thing we realize is, man, there ain't nothing much really that good about this flesh right here. It's, it's all going to go into the ground and die. I mean, come on. Within 100 years, there's a good chance everyone in this room will be dead. I mean, it's, we could say that pretty confidently that within a hundred years all of us will be dead or we'll be more alive than we've ever been amen Amen. but uh, but but one day this body is going to fall and it's going to give up and it's going to corrupt and it's going to go in the ground and worms are going to eat it but my flesh shall rest in hope right the hope of the resurrection where god makes all things new but, but we have no confidence in this flesh. Our rejoicing, our confidence is in the Lord. It's in Christ. One said it this way, stating it first in a brief sentence, circumcision respected the mortification of sin, the putting off of the filth of the flesh. Even in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Stiff-necked and rebellious. Uh, he said to uh, Stephen, said to them, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. Yeah. That's what he said to them. Yep. You know, God's command always is my son, give me thine heart. Amen. You know, you and I must always be concerned with our children's actions, but we should be more concerned with their heart. Yes. That's because right. if we teach and nurture yes. the heart, if we fertilize the word of God in their hearts. Right. If, we, if we do that, then their actions are going to follow suit. Amen. It is not just the outward actions of don't watch this, don't play this, don't do right. this. Right. right? No, no, no. What it is, is it is the heart. Because right. if the heart is truly in fellowship with the Lord, then those actions always follow. Amen. Or they will soon follow. Because it's the heart that God wants. He wants your heart. Amen. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. He's talking about circumcising their heart. That God does that work. You know, you and I, some, you children, I want you to understand something. You can come to church and you can follow suit and you can even memorize verses and all those things are good and you ought to do all those things. But you need grace, mercy, and truth in your heart. And only Christ can put that in there. You can try to outwardly conform and do all the, the good things that, that you're to do and we will teach you to do those things, but it is God that must circumcise your heart. It is, it is God that must deal with your heart. It's, it, it's the heart, right? That's what God wants. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Man, that sounds like a Puritan sermon. <laughs> that sounds like Jeremiah Burroughs or somebody that has a sermon on that, Jacob. Doesn't it? That verse just, I can imagine him preaching that in, that in those cities over there in England back then, 400 years ago. I can imagine that sermon coming up right there and just, just hearing that, that, that type of sermon. It just, it wouldn't surprise me. But, um, but what does he say? He talks about the heart. Because you know what? This, this is a picture of eternal life here. God circumcises, you circumcise yourself to the Lord, Right? 
Now God does that work. He's the divine, he does the divine operation, but there's an, there, there's a duty that you and I have that we're going to get to. True religion and undefiled is always from the heart and it's a movement of the heart where the heart is the actions and the flesh will follow, right? When you love God, you won't obey him. See, I don't always feel warm and loving and fuzzy. Well, you don't have enough mold on you. No, that's not, that's not it. But, but uh, that was a Dave joke. That was really bad. I, I got to quit hanging out with you. But uh, those things grow on you like, like, like mold and like, like a growth, like some fungus or something. But uh, anyway, but think about this, though. It's, it's, you know, it's the heart that God wants. It's true religion is undefiled. That Where the heart is, the actions follow. When you love God, what do you do? You follow him. That's just as simple as it is. It's not a begrudging following because a begrudging following will soon end. A begrudging following never, never will suffer trials. But by and by, they are offended by the word and they leave. But when it is true, perseverance is a part of that faith. And you continue on through all those things and you follow on. Many of you are here today because of that same thing. Because God put it in your heart and gave you strength to continue on. Right? right? That's how you got here. That's, that's how. God's grace. New Testament circumcision is a matter of the heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the heart is the main matter for the Christians. Outside actions will only take us as far as our heart is directed toward them. But if your heart is fixed on something, if it has been circumcised and the foreskin and deadness removed, you'll follow Christ to the gates of hell if need be and all the way to the pearly gates of heaven. Now, if you're not born again, then you must be because no real victory will come to you if you aren't saved. You cannot have victory in this Christian life without being born again. You can't. I know men that have given up drinking but we're not saved. They gave up smoking dope, but they weren't saved. They gave right. up individual acts, but were not saved. Right. And had some victory, but they were not saved. It was not until they truly saw themselves as lost, hell-bound sinners, deserving hell and knowing they were going there and needed Christ to save them that they got saved. They came in simple faith and believed the gospel, and they were born again. It's that simple. You see, they gave up some sins, but they were not transformed. You know, many of you in this room had that testimony before you came here. You had given up some sins. You, had, you took, I, I see somewhat of a, it's really strange. What I've noticed in people that are trying really hard in that sense means that they've not, they've not given up their own righteousness for the righteousness of Christ, but they become very harsh with others, like extremely over the top harsh with no grace. And they have this like satanic ability to obey God in some ways and to be strict on them, not, not from the heart, but strict outwardly, so strict and pharisaical, right, but they become mean. They have no grace for somebody else. If somebody has a different standard or somebody's not grown or somebody's not that far, they are ready to cut them off. I had people like that in this church. I had people try to, that did influence me for a while that were like that. And I looked at people and I was like, no, you know, uh, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with somebody and somebody years ago asked me, why don't you just like, why don't you just come together and church them out and just, just be done with it. And I looked at him and I said, because it's a life worth salvaging. That's why. Amen. But that person couldn't see that. No. Why? Because they had not the grace of God in them. They had the law. They could be the strictest Pharisee, but they couldn't love. They couldn't even love their own wife. They couldn't even sleep in the same bed as their own wife. They couldn't even have anything to do with a loving relationship, cold-hearted. But they could obey all these outward, but they weren't circumcised in the heart. And truth be known, most of them have underlying sins that they hide from everyone that they're outwardly doing. They had no true power, the nature that was not changed. 
Their nature was not changed. No, no new nature until, they, until people were saved by the grace of God. We had people in this room that were kind of like that. They were, they were harder. I remember trying to have victory when I was lost as well as even did some preaching. But the Lord showed me I didn't have any victory. I wasn't washed. I wasn't made new. And now I've had life in Christ for 19 years. Amen. So marvel not that you must be born again. Regenerated, made new by the divine operation of God. Yet there is a practical application for us as well. A removing of the foreskin of the heart that is built on a spiritual understanding and a reckoning or seeing ourselves the way God does. Romans 6.10, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now then, if you were saved, you must have that death of self that you deal with. There is a dying to self that always must be dealt with. A practical application of everyday life. Colossians 2.11, In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul notes that it's a picture buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, as circumcision was an operation of God in the heart. So is so is that work of the Holy Spirit. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. By the way, you have to understand how God sees you as a child of God. You know, great strength comes to the child of God when he focuses more on how God sees him than how he sees himself. Because how you and I see ourselves, especially if our, if our thinking is off, is we only see the bad. We only can see bad. We can never see the good. Or we see too much good and not any bad. We become self-righteous, thinking that all of our actions are right and correct. Right? This is how God, but how God sees us is different. We should remember that the Lord reckons all of our sins and guilt laid on Christ. Not only the sins, but the guilt of those sins. We need not hold on to it or be afraid to claim that wonderful forgiveness because it is a legal matter, plain and simple. It is not a matter of feeling. It is a matter of fact. That I am not guilty any longer, that I have been forgiven in Christ because he bore my sin and my guilt. He did not just bear your sin. He bore your guilt. So... You don't. doesn't mean that practically in application of everyday life that we don't have guilt for things. We do. But we need not hold it. We take it to the foot of the cross and leave it there. We don't hold on to it. We remember the resurrected man walks in newness of life. He doesn't try to walk the old life. He doesn't try to, he doesn't try to reminisce the old life and go back and live that over again. No. The resurrected life is a life forward Forward, forward, forward is the word, right? That's the only word. That's the only way is forward in the Christian life. Onward and upward till we go home. A.W. Pink said this, The faith of many of God's people apprehends the blessed fact that the guilt and condemnation of their actual transgressions was perfectly atoned for by Christ. But the faith of very few apprehends that their evil nature itself and all their corruptions had been made a legal end by the sacrifice of Christ. A lot of Christians don't understand that, and they're saved people. You and I grow in that understanding. We grow to understand how, how much we were saved from. 
They recognize by faith that God views them as cleansed from the curse of the law, that there is no condemnation resting upon them, but they fail to perceive that the justice of God regards them as purged from the very presence and defilement of sin in their natures, that there is no filth within them. This is how you mature in the faith. You understand that your guilt and filth was taken. It was paid for. Yet the latter is just as true of them as the former. Their old man was crucified with Christ. They were circumcised in Christ, which is described as a putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. Indwelling sin is called a body because it consists of various parts and members. And that body of sin has been put off, destroyed, or annulled as the word used signifies. Not only so, but the holiness of Christ has been imputed or placed to the account of their souls. There are certain damnable heretics that have made statements, uh, Pelagians and others, and um, uh, the Jesse Morrell types, the little apostate devils, uh, the little ministers of Satan that are out there that pretend to preach a gospel that is a false gospel. And I remember them saying, look, I remember them writing, look, Jesus can't live for you. Jesus can't be holy for you. And it's a false gospel. They don't believe in the imputed and imparted grace of God. And they can't understand it. So they live by a stringent law. You watch them. They live by this holiness law. Now, most of them, I'll be honest with you, they're the biggest closet perverts that you'll ever find in your life. I'm just, I'm telling you, they just are. They are the big, those holiness people are the strangest, kookiest, weirdest, um, perverted people. Why? Well, number one, their doctrine is perverted. If the doctrine is perverted, the flesh follows. Always does. Always. When it's that far. Always. Because they're trying to cover for something. Mm-hmm. Listen, if you don't have, if, if Christ doesn't live for you, you're in a lot of trouble. You have no dependence on God. This doesn't take away a personal responsibility for me to walk with God. It empowers me to walk with God. Amen. It strengthens me to walk with God. It makes me able to walk with God. People that don't understand grace. The Bible says the king's daughter is all glorious within. Not merely without, as covered with the robe of Christ's righteousness. Colossians 2.11, which we talked about, is a divine declaration which is addressed to faith and not a description of Christian experience. Though in proportion as faith really appropriates it, we experience the comfort and joy of it. Alas, that some of of those people that listen are likely to refuse that comfort and joy through suspicion and fear that a belief of the same might lead to carelessness and low views of sin. Man, I'm going to tell you one thing right now. I fear God more than I ever have in my entire life and I mean reverence, and want to obey Him because of His forgiveness. Amen. Thy gentleness hath made me great. It's not, not because, oh, well, if, you know, it's, there's strength, and if you, you know, if, if you sin, then you go to hell, then you won't sin. That's a lie. You'll, you'll sin more. Why? You'll sin more. Why? Because you'll depend on you, and if you depend on you, you are in a lot of trouble. But if you depend on the Holy Spirit of God, you will be strengthened and given power. Reckon you also yourselves to be circumcised and eaten to Christ, right? To be dead. He certainly is not bidding them to do anything that was dangerous, that had a dangerous tendency. He exhorts them so to regard themselves because they have a good and solid ground for doing so. They had a representative being in existence in their head when he suffered and died to remove both guilt and defilement of their sin. Unless we are one with Christ in his death, there could be no pardon or cleansing for us. The saints then are to regard their state before God to be what Christ is. 
delivered from sin's dominion, accepted in the Father's unclouded favor. Forgiven. Sometimes men are saved by the grace of God, but understanding the totality of that is, it comes with time. Understanding what you've been forgiven of and how you're accepted in the beloved, how you are not a victim, but a victor. I am not a victim of my afflictions. I am victorious in Christ through those afflictions. I can do all things through Christ. Strengthens me. He goes on to say this, Therein we have revealed the gospel method of mortifying sin in blessed contrast from the fleshly devices of the papist. It must flow from our union and communion with the Lord. Your strength comes from, it flows from Christ. And sometimes you forget that along the way. You think it's you and your own sanctification and your, you, you know, what you're going to do. Oh, no, no, no. Your victory flows from Christ. Your victory in all things flows from the person of Jesus Christ and his resurrection his strength, his power. When God does the miraculous work of circumcision to the heart, it is a spiritual heart transplant. He takes away the stony heart and replaces it with a clean one. The fountain of all true and spiritual mortification was opened at the cross of Jesus Christ. And God is very jealous of the honor of the person of his well-beloved son. And every departure from him and it and every attempt of the carnal mind to devise some other remedy for any of the wounds which sin has afflicted upon and within us is doomed to certain failure. Christ alone must be looked upon, must be looked to, deliverance to, for and because of, not only from the guilt of sin, but its power and pollution. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. You know, uh, I'm re this reminds me of what Paul said, Brother Paul. He said that, you know, he asked God, I was listening to one of his old preaching videos, and he said he asked God to show him what love was because he didn't know what that was and he didn't know how to love. And he said God showed him his son. And you know what, that's, that's really the truth. There are many people that they don't know how to love at all. But once they get saved by the grace of God, you have the capacity to love. I don't care what you've been through. You could have been grievously molested as a child. You could have been raped. You could have been, you could have been tormented. You could have been neglected. You could have had the worst parents. It doesn't, none of that matters. Because Christ gives you the capacity to love. Amen. So none of you have an excuse why you can't love one another. Amen. Why you can't love your spouse and be a good father, a good mother, a good husband. Why? Because you have Christ and he gives you the capacity to love. Because his love supersedes all natural love and affection Amen. and teaches you the proper love and affection that you need to have. By the Holy Spirit's illumination, he reveals Christ and he reveals to us the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. He said, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You know what? I couldn't obey God until I was saved. And then I wanted to. And I actually wanted to. It took, it took years to figure out how much sin's actually in you, though. In that nature, isn't it? Boy, the, 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 the longer you're saved, the more wretched you see this flesh. It's just the truth. The affections are divorced from evil and united to that which is good by the miracle of grace. This is God's circumcision. This is what God does. Now, by the way, this degree is different with all people. By the way, man, there's a lot to this. I'm going to shorten this up here, give you the cliff notes here. I think I find my place again. Let's see. Yep, I did that. Okay, here we go. God's circumcision makes obedience possible. You and I cannot obey without that divine circumcision, that divine surgery that old heart of stone being taken out and God transplanting, giving us a new heart. Our inward circumcision by the operation of the Spirit unto His people was in order to the better qualifying us for the discharge of our responsibility. See, this doesn't take away our responsibility. It enables us to obey it. That's the thing. It is not, it is not the law. It is grace. 
God doesn't stand over his children breathing out threatenings. But he speaks to it as he spoke to Joshua, grace, grace. It's, I'm not enslaved to obey. I'm free to obey. I'm no longer enslaved to sin and the darkness of this world, but I'm free to obey. While at regeneration, the Spirit gives a death wound unto sin in the affection of its favored subject, and while at the same time He implants in His heart an imperishable love and of, and of a longing for holiness, yet He does not then remove from Him the evil principle, the flesh. This is important to remember. Even with divine circumcision, there remains in His soul unto the end of this earthly pilgrimage, this flesh. Consequently, now, there is a ceaseless warfare with it, and therefore... He is henceforth called upon to fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold on eternal life, to swim against the stream of corruptions, of our own corruptions, to deny self, to mortify his members, which are upon the earth. The foes against which the Christian is called to wage conflict are mighty and powerful. That evil trinity of the flesh, the world, and the devil are relentlessly determined to destroy us. How then is he to successfully engage then in this? The devil can only be successful resisted as we remain steadfast in the faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And there could be no victory over indwelling sin except by the actings of faith. And of faith always has to do with Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's where strength comes from to fight. You and I sometimes, we get caught up in service and in doing so many things and in, in the Christian life. And what we lose sight of is, is that we're not in vital communion with the Lord as we should be. And I mean, when I say the Lord, I mean the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this, this book personifies Jesus Christ. It does. But it's seeing Jesus and looking unto Jesus and looking into his word and looking upon his face and being strengthened by that. Some of you, there's so many awful trials to bear and, and things to go through and all that. And the only way that you're strengthened to go through them is Christ. Christ is alone the Savior, not only from guilt and pollution of sin, but likewise from its power and its ragings within us. When sin rages, when lust, when covetousness, when wickedness, when perversion wants to rage up, when your anger, when everything wants to rage up in your flesh, it is Christ and vital communion with Him that gives us strength, virtue, to fight it. That woman reached out and she touched Christ and he perceived that virtue had gone out of him. What is that virtue? Moral, supernatural purity. Energy. It's actually energy is what it is. Jesus literally felt moral purity. So he was touched by faith. And he felt, I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. When you get saved, virtue goes out of you. Or goes out of Christ and is given to you. From Christ. Virtue. That's why you have any virtue in you. Amen. That's why. So make much about Christ. Always. Every day of your life, no matter what the trial is, make much about Christ in the trial. Much about his person. Christ is the grand object. He is the sustainer of our faith. He is the strengthener of our faith. That is according to the appointment of the Father has determined that his people should be indebted to his beloved Son for everything. That they may ascribe their all unto him. That they may place the crown of honor and glory upon his head. Christ is alone Savior. In the matter of practical circumcision, our mortifying of sin, man's thoughts and ways are as far below God as in everything else. As far as the earth is below the heavens, man supposes he must do this in order to obtain that or avoid this in order to enjoy that, abstain from this evil so as to enter into good. But he knows not where to obtain strength for doing it. Contrast that with God's way is to furnish that which equips for the performance of duty. To bestow freely that gratitude. To bestow freely and equip us 
to lavish love upon us that we cannot but love him in return, to make known what he has made Christ to be unto us and then bids us walk worthy of such a Savior. He first makes us light in the Lord and then bids us walk as children of light. Watch that. That's Ephesians 5, 8. You see that. He first makes us saints, then bids us act as becometh saints in Ephesians 5, 13. 5.3. He makes us holy, then calls us to be in behavior as becometh holiness. Immediately after the Christians are bidden to likewise reckon you also to have indeed be dead unto sin, but alive unto Christ, they are exhorted, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Though they have died unto sin legally, sin is as far from being dead within them. It's still here. They're no longer in the flesh. As far as their standing before God is concerned, yet the flesh is still in them. Though Christ put away the whole of guilt and pollution of their sin, He has not yet fully delivered them from its power, that they might prove the sufficiency of His grace, the marvels of His forbearance, and the reality of His keeping power, and that there might be opportunity for the trial, exercise, and development of those graces. But though the evil principle or that evil nature be not eradicated, the Christian is exhorted to let not sin therefore reign. You're to fight it. Fight it with faith. Let not therefore sin reign is far more than an appeal for us to exercise our wills. It is, the, it is a call for faith to make one's own all that standing in state which is ours by virtue of our legal and vital union with Christ. Faith is urged to apprehend and appropriate our sin, sinlessness in Christ by our death and resurrection in Him. That is the only right way to approach into gaining the victory over sin in our daily lives. It's not by strength, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And God always honors faith. God will set no premium upon unbelief, but He will honor faith. Faith is called upon to recognize and reckon that sin was vanquished by Christ. So having a good legal understanding, I'm going to stop here, but having a good legal understanding as well leads into a good practical understanding of things. We are dead to sin legally. We are victors over it. As faith beholds sin perfectly conquered by Christ judicially, it seeks to have fellowship with him wherein it, in a practical way. To repudiate long-cherished sins, relinquish beloved idols, is a cutting and a painful experience to nature. And therefore is it designated a circumcision and mortifying of our members. Yes, so distressing is such work, our Lord likened it to plucking out the right eye or cutting off the right hand. That's how hard it is. That's how, that's how much of a challenge it is, even by faith, as we have to die to self. you got to cut that... You have to cut the hand off that does that spiritually, the body, right? The body of sin. That's not this. It's this. This has a body of sin in it, and it has members. And those are the ones that are mortified. Now, when they're mortified in the heart, they're mortified in the actions, right? It's the death knell to the heart of sin and the flesh and the devil. And it's like a plucking out the right. But see, the, the mystics have it all wrong. Those that beat themselves and try to beat their flesh, the papists and all those, and they try to, what, what was that word? Um, yes, where they, where they beat themselves and they're trying to make amends for their sins. You cannot make amends for your sins. Christ paid for it, right? Christ paid for it. You cannot. But in, in, your, in, your, in your spirit, you mortify those things. Because if it's mortified here, if it's mortified here, it will be mortified here. It is the heart that must be changed. And it's the heart that grows in faith. Yet such is not only a needful and profitable duty, he says, but it becomes a desirable and longed-for one by those who truly love the Lord. The more their minds be spiritually occupied with Christ's love, the more are their affections drawn forth unto him and the more are their hearts brought to hate sin. And the more we hate sin, the more we are dying to it in our affections. God will teach you to hate sin. He'll teach you to hate the things that you once 
gloried in. You'll hate it. You'll hate it. By the way, that's a continual process. The longer you're saved, the more you'll hate it as you walk with God. The more you'll hate your own nature and what it's capable of and what it's willing to do, you'll hate it more. The more you love Christ, the more you'll hate that. That is New Testament circumcision, its operations, its activities, the benefits of it, and the duty that we have in it, because we have a duty in it. We have a duty to mortify because we have been circumcised in the heart. We have a duty to follow. Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your church. And Lord, if there be one or two here not saved, I pray you'd save their souls. But Lord, I pray for your children, those that are children of God by faith in Christ. Lord, we need strengthened. We need to understand the vital communion and our union with Christ and that we would walk circumspectly and that we would look unto Jesus and always look to you. Keep our eyes on the person of Christ and each and every one of his offices, each and every one of his attributes, that we may know Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Thank you, Father, for the grace of Christ. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for your forgiveness and forbearance. Help, me to, help us to love one another with a pure heart fervently. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.